Good afternoon and welcome. I'm Ken Weinstein, President and CEO of Hudson Institute. Welcome to the Betsy and Walter Stern Conference Center. Delighted to have you with us today for today's conference on the Chinese economic slowdown, why it matters, and what the strategic implications are. This is a critical issue for the global economy. Uh, it is a critical issue for uh, the economies of Asia, but it, it's also an, an issue that's uh, critical to uh, strategic developments. And we at Hudson have always stressed the uh, important links between uh, economics and uh, grand strategy and economics and international affairs, going back to Herman Kahn's, our founder's, pioneering work on the future of Japan. Herman Kahn, of course, was the first to recognize that Japan would be the world's second largest economy. He did so in the context of a study that he was doing for the Pentagon in 1962 that looked at growth rates in Japan as part of a, an examination of Japan's uh, potential to develop uh, and significantly expand its defense capabilities. And so these issues are, we at Hudson recognize that these issues are interlinked, that uh, technology, innovation, rates of economic growth uh, affect uh, the relative positions of nations around the world, and uh, we're very fortunate to have with us today John Lee, who is a senior fellow with Hudson Institute, based in Sydney, Australia. And John is well known in his in his own country as a uh, leading analyst of both international affairs and uh, of defense policy, and his his work on the Chinese economy and the challenges that it faces. Have appeared, in, have appeared in such publications as the Financial Times, the Wall Street Journal, and he's been semi-regular, actually, on CNBC discussing these issues as well. So John's doctorate uh, is in international relations, and he also teaches at the Australian National University, and we're very fortunate uh, that he's able to bring with us a global perspective on, on this issue, which looks somewhat different, I think, uh, in Asia than it does here in the United States. So without any further ado, I'm delighted to welcome John Lee and look forward to hearing from him. Thank you very much. Ken, thank you very much for that um, kind introduction. Um, as Ken mentioned, I'm based in Sydney. Uh, this gives Hudson a presence in the uh, very south of the Southern Hemisphere, so I can say that the Hudson Empire, the sun never sets. Uh, on the Hudson Empire. Uh, thank you all for uh, coming. It's a pretty dreary day out there, so I appreciate uh, you making your time. Just by way of background, uh, this presentation is based on an ongoing 18-month uh, project that I've been uh, doing on the slowing Chinese economy and what that means for uh, American interest. Uh, just to acknowledge uh, my uh, gratitude to the Smith uh, Richardson Foundation uh, which has been primarily funding this project. So let me get straight down to uh, the part about the slowing Chinese economy. Now, everyone agrees that the days of double-digit growth uh, are in the past. Uh, I think recently the growth target has been set at 6.5%. Recently, until recently, it was 7%. Now, no one really thinks it's 6.5%. If you talk to investment banks, businesses on the ground, they say it's anywhere between uh, 2, 3, 4, 5%. Look, it doesn't really matter what the actual figure is. We'll never know. But the point is that the Chinese economy 
is significantly slower in growth uh, than it was a few years ago. Now, immediately I know a lot of you will be thinking, okay, it's not 10%, it's not 11%, but so what? You know, China is, depending on how you measure it, a $10 trillion US economy, uh, even if China's growing at 4%. I mean, that's still a, a, an enormous economic expansion each year. So, you know, so what if it's 4% or 5%? I suppose I'm going to spend the next 15 minutes trying to answer the so what question, you know, why it matters that China uh, is slowing from what it was a few years ago. Now, I don't intend to get too uh, deeply into uh, why China is slowing and why the slowdown uh, I think is structural and not just a cyclical temporary slowdown. But just very briefly, um, the major problem is uh, just too much debt and too much uh, inefficient investment in the Chinese economy. And this is actually what happened in Japan from the late 80s, 1990s onwards. Now, if you take as a sample the period from 2006 to 2014 in China, the, co- the economy in that period, eight-year period, uh, expanded about 162%. Now, of that 162%, 6% was because of what economists call total factor productivity. Uh, sorry, uh, was because of labour inputs, um, just, just the additional labour inputs into the economy. About 20% of that 162% uh, was total factor productivity, which is essentially using labour or capital more efficiently. Uh, and... 136% of the 162% was purely because of inserting capital inputs uh, into the economy, basically building things uh, in China, whether those things were needed uh, or not. So the huge amount of capital uh, inputs needed to uh, fuel such a growth model uh, means that national corporate debt levels uh, have gone up from about 147% of GDP in 2008 to over 250% uh, currently. Uh, if you uh, include government, uh, if you include official government debt and unofficial government debt and also corporate debt, you're talking about um, a figure of around 300% of GDP. Now, even if we put aside uh, the fiscal debt and you focus on national corporate debt, fiscal debt, by the way, is about 50% of GDP currently. Uh, If you focus on national corporate debt, uh, the majority of the corporate debt is undertaken by state-owned enterprises, uh, which are implicitly uh, guaranteed by the government. Now, the expansion of corporate debt in China has gone up, and I'll use uh, US dollar figures uh, throughout, has gone up from about $9 trillion uh, to $25 trillion in the last eight years alone. And if you want to put that in context, in the last eight years in China, the amount of debt increase um, equates to about one and a half times the size of the entire American commercial banking system, which is a much deeper, uh, much larger um, um, debt system and economy. So in eight years, China has uh, created 150% of the American commercial banking system. Now, as occurs with any economy, uh, when you invest uh, more than the economy actually needs, more than there is actually demand for, overcapacity obviously becomes a problem. So you need to put in um, more and more capital to get the same amount of growth. So 10 years ago, every $2.5 of capital you put in generated $1 of growth. Um, it now takes 6 or $7 
of additional input, additional capital input to generate one dollar of growth, which incidentally is twice as inefficient as, say, a country like India, if you want a comparison. Now, it also means that more and more new capital is being used to manage uh, existing debt. So this means that this worsening debt problem uh, is all but guaranteed since you can't just grow your way out of trouble, which is what China has done in the last 20 or 30 years. You can't just throw in more and more capital at the problem and expect um, the same results. You'll get sort of declining suboptimal results. So China, in this sense, is experiencing something like what Japan experienced uh, in the 1990s. And even if China will grow a little bit faster than the 0.1% that Japan grew, it essentially has the same problem uh, that Japan uh, had a couple of decades ago. Now, let me return to the question why this matters. You know, it might be very interesting economics, the numbers might seem fantastic uh, or, or troubling, but why does this actually matter uh, from um, um, the point of view of China's capacity to um, project power? Now, as an aside, I think there's, if you travel around a region, there's already a sort of psychological consequence to this um, in, with respect to the Chinese slowdown. Like, if you travelled around Asia a few years ago, and, and, and probably even in America, there was this general mantra that, yes, America's the number one power, but time is basically on China's side. That all China really has to do is sit tight, it's got, let the 1.3 billion people do its work, um, and as long as it doesn't do anything stupid, as long as it doesn't promote or provoke a war with the Americans... Time will be on China's side and China will invariably sort of rise to regional and global uh, dominance and prominence. Now, when you have such a psychological state of mind, um, which was the case a few years ago, you tend to get paralysis in policy. You, You don't tend to get a lot of creativity in policy because you kind of think that you can't fight the future. But when you realize that the Chinese economy is not uh, invulnerable, it's not invincible, you start getting more creative in, in terms of how you deal with China's rise. And it hasn't happened uh, in a comprehensive way, but it is happening. And there are more creative uh, discussions going on out there about how you actually manage uh, Chinese power. But that's something vague and ambiguous, as important as I think that psychological state is. So let me get to some specifics about why even a moderate Chinese slowdown uh, actually matters. Now, some of you would say, okay, China's slowing, but if you want to use the metaphor, if you're standing there and a truck is coming towards you, okay, it might be going at 40 miles an hour, not 80 miles an hour, but it's still going to, you know, squash you. So it doesn't really matter. Well, even if China grows at its current pace, let's say it makes 6.5%, which is optimistic. So even if it grows at its current pace or its current official pace, uh, the structural slowdown is going to uh, disproportionately affect central budgets for a number of reasons. And remember, it's the central budget that funds the PLA, the People's Liberation Army, um, and uh, other instruments of Chinese national power. So let me explain why there's going to be a serious consequence for the Chinese uh, central budget and therefore for Chinese power. Now, first of all, let me talk about the revenue side of, of, of the fiscal equation China has a very narrow tax base. It's not like America or other advanced countries. Less than 2% of people in China pay income tax. That's important because income tax is a very stable way of 
revenue for the government. But less than 2% of people pay income tax. About 5% of the budget is from income taxes. Uh, almost, or most of the taxes come from uh, a VAT, which is added to every stage of production, and it also comes from corporate taxes. So the point I'm making here is that fiscal revenue in China is uh, disproportionately linked to business cycles, uh, unlike in most advanced economies. And when the business cycle slows, even moderately, it has a huge hit on um, the, the revenue side of, of the equation, and the evidence is already emerging. Now, if you take the period from 1993 to uh, 2012, government revenue growth averaged around 19, 20%. So, you know, growth each year. So in, in that 20-year period. So that, that's pretty, uh, that, those are pretty easy days for the Chinese government. Now, fiscal expenditure growth around the same time averaged the same, about 19, 20%. So you basically had growing budgets, but it was balanced because the revenues were uh, pretty good. Now, you consider the slowdown, which really began around uh, 2013. Now, the slowdown was fairly moderate. There was a few um, GDP percentage points. But revenue growth went from an average of 19 20% over the last 20 years to 8% in uh, 2014. So a sudden drop from 19.8% the year before to 8% in 2014. Uh, in the first six months of this year, uh, fiscal uh, revenue growth was 6.6%. Um, expenditure growth, though, was 24.8%. This was the government trying to desperately stimulate the economy uh, as growth was moderating in China. So if you talk to independent uh, banking firms, who I tend to believe more than official figures, um, and the record is that they're much more accurate than official figures. Uh, so I'm talking about the Deutsche Banks, the Goldman Sachs's. Uh, they're forecasting a 4.5% growth in revenues for the central government and about a 5% decline in revenue for the local governments, local governments being all the levels of government beneath uh, the central government. Now, even if it's not going to be as bad as that. Um, it's unavoidable that China is now facing a uh, dramatically shrinking revenue growth, if not an absolute decline uh, in revenue growth. And I'm going to get back to why this matters uh, in a few minutes. Now, let me just get to the expenditure side of it, which is actually a more serious problem uh, for the government. Uh, China undertook uh, some fairly radical fiscal reforms in 1994. Prior to 1994, um, the central government was receiving about 50% of the revenues and was spending about 50% of um, governments, was, was behind half of all government spending. Now, after the, the um, reforms in 1994, there was a mass centralisation. And so what happened was the central government started to receive 55, 60% of total government revenues, but they only... Um, were behind uh, about 20% of fiscal outlays. So local government were getting, um, you know, uh, 40% of government revenues, but they were behind almost 80, 85% of total government outlays. So there was this huge imbalance. The idea in 1994 was that the central government would take the revenue and give some back to the, the local governments uh, in the provinces of their choice. Now, like most governments, didn't actually happen. The central governments took the revenue, spent it, and didn't actually um, give uh, the local government more revenue uh, despite its promises. Now, currently, um, the shortfall for local governments 
each year is about $800 billion. And um, this, the shortfall is largely made up from proceeds uh, from rant, land sales and real estate. So just imagine this. Levels of government below the central government, you've got a shortfall of $800 billion, which is about 40% of your budget, and you make it up through seizing land or appropriate, appropriating land, um, going into business with de- developers, building residential industrial blocks and selling it in a booming property market. That's actually how local government makes 40% of, of their budget or comprise 40% of their budget. So, in fact, the huge fixed investment boom uh, after 2008, which occurred in China, um, about 40% of the fixed investment went into real estate with the local governments um, at the heart of the, the, the real estate development and boom that occurred after 2008. So the bottom line is that uh, the huge residential property speculation, uh, speculative market in China uh, has led to massive uh, overcapacity. Uh, despite what you've been told, the building of residential units, for example, in China has had almost nothing to do with the needs of urbanisation. Um, if you look at just the three largest provinces in China alone, there are uh, enough empty, completed, sole residential blocks uh, to house the urbanisation needs of the whole country for the next 20 years. Uh, so this kind of shows you, this chart sort of shows you that um, you know, this massive increase in building um, really had nothing to do with demand or need of uh, the Chinese citizens. It was all about re- revenue raising for the local governments. So even if there is no residential property price collapse, I mean, some people are talking about a property bubble in China. Even if there is no collapse or bursting of the bubble as such, the market just cannot continue in the same way. I think there's, there's universal agreement uh, on that. Uh, given the oversupply and the slowing credit environment uh, in the Chinese economy. So the estimate now is that the proceeds from land and property sales uh, for for local governments is likely to halve from the peaks of 2013 um, as the property boom uh, deflates. It doesn't have to collapse as it just sort of declines and deflates. Now, this equates to a local government fiscal shortfall of about half a trillion US dollars uh, each year over the next uh, few years. Now, local governments also can't just borrow their way out of trouble, which is what they've done uh, in, the, in the last few years. If you look at the finances now of local governments, every one in three new dollars, every one in three dollars of new borrowings is used just to manage existing debt because the debt levels is so high now, it's about $5 trillion US, 50% of GDP, um, that, that one in $3 that they borrow is used just to manage existing debt and stop them from defaulting on existing debt. I had a conversation with a, uh, a CEO of one of the major f- Chinese banks uh, a while ago, and I said to him, you know, how do you spend your day? What do you do? Um, you know, what, what kind of deals do you talk about? And he said, I spend half of my time now renegotiating loans with local governments. So that, that's the situation now uh, in, in China. Now, if local governments become, or local government SOEs, which have been behind the, the property speculation, if they become uh, insolvent, there will obviously be a seri- serious contagion effect on the whole banking system 
um, because the state-owned banks have been the, have been the ultimate uh, backers uh, behind um, the state-owned um, entities from the local government side. So this is why Beijing has uh, periodically ordered state-owned banks to just roll over maturing loans to stop them from defaulting. Now, in, in, in a perverse kind of way, there's a short-term tactical resilience to the Chinese system. Unlike the situation in America, you know, the government can't just force banks um, consistently to roll over maturing loans. In China, that's what they constantly do. So on the books, the, the non-performing loan ratio is extremely low. It's about 2 3%. But the reality is that it's, it's a lot higher than that. Now, if the, if, uh, the government, the central government decides to find a more f- final uh, solution to this problem, this means that it would have to recognise more than half a trillion uh, dollars worth of distressed and non-performing loans. This would mean hundreds of billions of dollars each year of capital injections into the state-owned banks and the, the informal financial sector to stabilise it. So obviously that's a very costly exercise, uh, which I don't think the uh, central government uh, could afford to do given its own uh, increasing debt levels. And then you consider the way China's evolving. I mean, the expanding um, um, needs for social goods, for example, as the country ages. And, and I think you all know that the China is ageing faster than any major country uh, in history, largely because of the one-child policy. Now, if you want to take one comparison, for China to reach comparable levels of GDP um, per capita spending on social goods compared to not high-income but low-income countries, um, it would have to find an additional $1 trillion a year to pour into social spending. So if you want to compare China to the average of social spending in other low-income countries in Asia, um, it would have to find a $1 trillion US a year just to kind of meet that low-income standard. I'm not saying that standard is the standard, but just as a comparison of how little China actually spends on social goods and that part of the budget uh, is just going to increase. Now, let me just get uh, quickly to the implications of this and once again to the so what question. You know, once again, this might all be very interesting, but so what? I mean, okay, it's a problem for the government, but so what when it comes to Chinese power? Now, for a government, and that is local and um, central, for a government receiving $2.26 trillion US in revenue each year, which is what they received last year, the amounts or the deferred liabilities that I'm talking about are not uh, are non-trivial. They're highly significant. So I'm going to focus on the central government because it's ultimately the central government that has the capacity to increase uh, China's national power. The central government receives around a trillion dollars in revenues each year. After transfers to local government, this is about 250 to 300 billion dollars the central government spends 40 to 60% of the remaining budget on national security. And when I say national security, I mean the People's Liberation Army and the People's Armed Police. The People's Armed Police is a military-trained domestic um, force of over a million people whose um, main preoccupation is to control domestic unrest and provide uh, security um, um, within China, so in areas like Tibet and Xinjiang, for example. This is distinct from the police force, which is a local budget, uh, local government concern. But the PAP, People's Armed Police, is effectively the second military of uh, the China, Chinese Communist Party. So, to, so to, 
central government spends 4 to 60%, depending on whose figures you use, on, of, its, of its budget after transfers to local government on national security. So it's easy to see uh, that if revenue growth declines, which it will, uh, the central government will have to uh, transfer an increasing amount of money to local governments to manage that debt situation. And after all, it's the local governments that build local infrastructure that provide 98% of what social goods are provided by um, the, the Chinese government. It is not an option to just ignore the fiscal problems of the local government by the central government. So for the past two decades, we've basically had to deal with a China that had no fiscal um, prohibitions, no fiscal constraints. They didn't really have to make any hard fiscal decisions. They could maximise the amount they spent on projecting national power and a rising tide tends to lift all boats. Uh, we now deal with a China that is living in a real fiscal world like any other um, normal country, if you like, except there are, I think, unique and serious liabilities and deficiencies in the Chinese society that need to be um, looked after and need to be funded, um, which will be the responsibility of the central government. So let me just offer a couple of broad suggestions as to um, what this might actually mean uh, if, you, if you sort of want to look five, five years ahead and a little bit beyond. Now, first of all, you're going to get increased uh, funding competition and even cannibalisation between the PLA and the P P PAP, the People's Liberation Army and the People's Armed Police. They dip their hands in the same uh, central budget. It's all under the national security budget. Now, if you get increased competition between the two, the PLA and the PAP, um, my view is that PAP will get its way because the PAP is there to control domestic unrest. Remember, the number one priority for the Chinese Communist Party is to stay in power, right? It, it, is, not to, um, it is not to control the South China Sea or East China Sea. It is to stay in power. And it needs a well-funded, well-equipped PAP to deal with domestic unrest and as many of you would know, domestic unrest is rising quite dramatically, uh, even as China becomes a, a richer country. Uh, incidentally, the government stopped releasing official figures on domestic unrest uh, about two years ago. But two years ago, the figure was 184,000 instances of mass unrest. Um, that was 2013 or 2012, I can't remember. Mass unrest is 50 or more people protesting against government officials. So the P the the Communist Party has no option but to uh, ask, but to give the PAP whatever the PAP thinks that it needs. The second consequence is you're going to get increased competition and cannibalisation within the PLA. So um, China has traditionally been a continental power, traditionally been a military based on the army, based on the land, is trying to become a naval power. Um, at Prior to this period, you know, when you have budgets growing at double-digit rates, everyone gets what they want. The PLA Navy gets what it wants, the PLA Army gets what it wants, the Air Force gets what it wants. Like every other normal country, you're going to start to see uh, increased competition between the uh, armed services, and this has strategic implications. I mean, China... Um, if you look at the Chinese Defence White Paper in 2015, it was the first white paper which stated that the sea is as important as the land. It used to be a land um, focus. The first time it said the sea is as important as the land. 
Now, that's all fine, but is the PLA Navy, which is relatively uh, new and, and relatively recent in its capabilities, will it get the uh, increased funding that it needs to become a truly uh, world-class Navy? I think you, you, over time, fiscally, that becomes uh, more of a contested question than it has been in the past. This slide here, I, I, it's, I don't expect you to read it. The writing is really small, but it's really just talking about the capability gaps that are still significant uh, in the, the PLA. The point I'm really making is that, particularly with the naval side, which is what we care about, what, what America cares about and what Australia, my country, Australia, cares about, to get its navy up to shape to be at least a match for uh, the American navy and the Japanese navy, it's got enormous capability gaps. It's expensive. It's a lot more expensive um, than um, maintaining the capabilities of its land forces. And, you know, so as, as I mentioned, there is an open question as to whether China is going to be uh, fiscally able to give the PLA Navy uh, all that it's asking for. Now, the third consequence, um, and this is an economic and a military component, now, consider China's um, so-called indigenous innovation uh, strategy in so-called strategic and important sectors, which applies to both industry and military capabilities. This is essentially the desire for uh, China, for the, by the Chinese government, to develop in-house indigenous capabilities in something like 402 sectors and subsectors um, that it considers critical to national power. Now, if you look at how China has got ahead industrially um, in the last 10 years or so, you know, many people think China has an advantage because it had low labour costs and, and, and that's actually why China has, been managed, has managed to get a lot of market share in, in lots of industries and sectors. That's actually not really true. China's main uh, source of competition has been free or cheap capital given to local firms also in the forms of subsidies and tax breaks as well. So it's ba what China has essentially done is um, out-compete foreign firms by giving its local companies, particularly state-owned enterprises, free or cheap capital, billions of dollars of subsidies in all sectors that it wants to emphasise, uh, and also tax breaks and regulatory protections uh, as opposed to what is faced by foreign firms. So, for example, to give you an, ex uh, an illustration of the scale of the assistance given to local Chinese firms, if you take away the subsidies, the tax breaks and other direct advantages given to SOEs in the past 10 years, um, and as you know, China's SOEs dominate every capital-intensive industry in the country, if you remove the subsidies and other advantages, other direct advantages given to these SOEs, um, these SOEs would all have made a collective loss. If, if you looked at the, the books of the SOEs, they would make a collective loss. When the SOEs issue their profit and loss statements every year, they include the subsidies in it. So, you know, it doesn't actually give you a true reflection on, on, on how well um, these SOEs or how badly these SOEs uh, are going or have been going. So... Bearing the cost of this so-called state-led in indigenous innovation strategy is easy when your revenues are going up at 20%. It's obviously much harder when your revenues are going up at 5% or 
So you take the most recent five-year plan that China released, uh, which goes from 2016 to 2020. Now, in this five-year plan, China says it will devote uh, $1.5 trillion US in that five-year period to, to so-called seven strategic emerging industries. Now, that's $300 billion a year that the, that the central government has to find um, to fund just seven sectors that it considers uh, of enormous importance to Chinese power. I mean, it's very unlikely the Chinese central government is going to find $300 billion that it doesn't already have. Now, I'm just going to... Let me conclude and, and I'll take some uh, questions or, or comments uh, if you have any. You know, none of this is to suggest that China's going to collapse or that China is a paper tiger or that we don't really have to worry, that we just should sit tight and, you know, time's on our side and we need to do nothing uh, about it. So I'm not suggesting that at all. China is already large enough to, to be a significant uh, and concerning presence um, in East Asia. Uh, not yet in the world, but you know, certainly in East Asia. What I am really saying is that time is not necessarily on China's side. Uh, as is, I think, still a common wisdom. So you look at um, China's circumstances, you look at its strategic situation, it is an extremely lonely power strategically. In fact, I've made the point elsewhere, you could make the case that it is the loneliest rising power in world history. China does not have any genuine strategic allies. It's got a few tactical partners, Russia, Pakistan, etc., but it, has very, it doesn't have any genuine strategic allies that it can leverage off. Uh, the economic and social frailties in China are worsening. They're not getting better. The country is ageing faster um, than any other before it. Incidentally, if you want to look at the great powers leading up to 2050, uh, America, largely because of immigration, and India, if you want to count India as a potential great power, they're the only two great powers with, with favourable demographics leading up to 2050. So China has these problems. If... As you move up the value and innovation ladder, which China is doing and, and China's trying to do more rapidly, um, merely just subsidising innovation becomes less and less inefficient. You know, you've got to come up with um, some genuine indigenous sources of innovation. You can't just throw capital at it. You can, you know, achieve something by stealing it from abroad, which, to be frank, the Chinese do, but that in itself isn't going to get you to where you need to be. Um, and you can see politically from the current President Xi's uh, anti-corruption campaign, um, it's a pretty divided and somewhat vulnerable party. Now, I'm not predicting a collapse of the party. What, I'm, what I am saying is that um, it, is not, it is not all uh, chummy and cosy within the Chinese Communist Party. There are enormous problems within the party, and the anti-corruption campaign is as much about factional... Uh, infighting as it is about removing uh, corrupt officials. So my summary is it's essentially um, time that China is going to live in a real fiscal world. It hasn't really had to for the last 10, 15 years. It's now going to have to live in a real fiscal world. It's going to make the real hard decisions that every other major country has to make. It can't just throw money at every ambition that it has. Now, this clearly opens up opportunities uh, when it comes to uh, capacities to um, compete with China, to, to shape the kind of competition with China and where, you, where and in what you actually compete. 
Um, so, you know, my, my conclusion would be that there are enormous opportunities in constructive ways available to America and uh, certainly to allies like Australia, uh, like, like my country. Um, so I thank you and I'm more than happy to uh, take any comments or questions. Hi, thank you. I'm Floriano, a science visiting researcher. Um, I was kind of struck with your um, statement that um, Chinese growth uh, was more relying on um, cheap financing and uh, SOEs than on cheap labor. Yeah. So uh, if we think about like end of 70s, early 80s, when there was not so much money around in China. Where did that money come from to uh, provide for this cheap financing of, of the economy? China has not just a closed capital account, even though there are leakages where you know, it's, it's difficult to take money out of the country. It's also got a closed banking system which is uh, almost dominated by the state-owned banks. So... In other words, it has almost perfect savings capture. So any, in, in, in the 79 onwards and in 1980s when reforms first began and the economy started to uh, take off, the savings of households were all placed into state-owned banks because there were no alternatives. You couldn't put your money anywhere else. And in the 80s and 90s and this decade, it's largely been state-owned banks that have funded, that have provided the capital for SOEs to, um, to thrive. So, you know, when you have a system where you've got perfect savings capture um, and depositors have to put money into state-owned institutions and, incidentally, depositors get back a rate of return that's, that's negative in real terms, depositors are effectively subsidising the industrial activities of mainly SOEs. That's kind of how the Chinese system has worked over the last 10 or 15 years. And one consequence is that that's why you've got fairly suppressed household income levels and very high SOE revenue levels um, because all of the, well, not all, much of the country's wealth has been given to uh, SOEs. But to answer your question, that's where they get it from, the banking system. I mean, China is not like America or other advanced economies where sources of finance are quite diverse. In China, you either get money from state-owned banks Increasingly, you get it from the so-called shadow banking sector, which ultimately state-owned banks are kind of behind anyway. Um, you know, but ultimately, it's, it's from the banking sector. It's not, there's not, not a huge bond market in China. There's not a huge... Even stock markets aren't really a major source of uh, capital raising. It's really from banks, and there's perfect savings capture. Yep. Uh, yeah. Brian Marshall. I'm uh, semi-retired. And uh, you indicated uh, <clears throat> that China has a relatively narrow tax base, only 2% of the population paying into it, and most of the government revenues come from uh, the uh, VAT. Uh, what's to prevent the government from changing that situation, expanding the tax base? I mean, first of all, China has a huge informal economy, like lots of developing Asian economies. So, you know, if you run a... And lots of these businesses are not registered. So there's just a, there's no institutional capacity to collect um, 
um, across the board household or to tax income tax revenue. The second thing is that because China is is such a fixed investment driven economy, even if you wanted to target households, the wealth isn't with households; it's with the corporations. So you know you might broaden your tax base, but you won't get as much from households uh, as you would uh, anyway. But the main problem is the institutional one. It's just they just don't have the institutional capacity to um, to collect in income tax because it's such an informal economy. This is actually not unusual in much of Asia. So, for example, Malaysia, which is the country I was born, Malaysia's middle-income country, but only about 8% of people pay income tax because there's such a huge informal economy, um, which is why VAT um, is really the only way you can kind of tax people. And VAT is on every stage of production. It's not just on final consumption in China. Uh, yeah. started off at one point was very informal economies as they modernized they had to figure out yeah. how to do this so this is nothing unusual no it's nothing Asia. unusual but none of these economies wanted to rival America as a great power so, so well not, not in the military terms so, so my point is that if Jip, well post 1940 yeah well uh, look, my point is not that this is unique to China. My point is that for a country that spends 40 to 60% of its discretionary central budget on national defence or national security, it can't keep on doing that. And the fact that you can't keep on... Yeah, yeah. So, no, but I understand your point. Yeah. Uh, Abe. What what would be the uh, possibilities of trying to give the local governments their own their own sources of revenue? I mean, that's a lot of what you're saying seems yeah. to depend on the fact that the local governments really don't have any source of revenue other than land sales, and that's got to that's yeah. got to come to an end. But things like you know real estate taxes and all the other kinds yeah. of things that we're familiar with uh, would that yeah. would that be a possible way out for them it, it's a partial possible way out but the whole reason why centralization in 994 occurred was because local governments when they're not restrained tend to overtax people and cr- it creates a lot of resentment it also does a lot of damage uh, at an economic level to this idea of trying to raise household income to rebalance the economy into a much more consumption-driven economy. So, yeah, it would help a little bit, but the problem is that local governments are now so deeply indebted that for, for the taxation powers to make any difference to their debt levels, it would, ha- it would have to be enormously oppressive taxes, which would obviously feed into the whole um, stability issue for central government. And central government... You know, local governments as well, there's also a competency and, and corruption issue. Um, so the central government's fairly reluctant to allow the local government to do that. Little things central government has done in the last uh, year or so, it's allowed local governments to issue bonds to pay for specific infrastructure projects and not for, for actual revenue-raising purposes or general revenue-raising purposes. But once again, the only reason why people buy these bonds is because it's guaranteed by the central government. I, I teach over at Georgetown. Um, the most impressive number to me that you presented was 
China would have to spend an additional trillion dollars in social programs to come up to the level of what its neighbors yeah. are doing. Well, its low-income neighbors are doing. not n- Even, even yeah. low-income yeah. countries. Um, it's a big failure, what's happening now, and one of the results is that people are forced, in effect, to save enormous amounts of money yeah. at household level to protect themselves yeah. from yeah. extremes of poverty and old age. One-child policy, and the problem is that. Yeah. Uh, I could see how that could change, how the, a government that focused on corruption and then decided let's focus on poverty issues and make the move from countryside to cities more effective. I could see how it could all work, but much of what you've been saying says, don't think so, not going to work. So I just asked this question. Suppose you gave this talk in Beijing or Shanghai. How do you think people would react to it? Um, I, well, first of all, the fiscal issue, they wouldn't deny it because um, even if you looked at the, um, the recent uh, plenum that, um, that the Chinese Communist Party held, you know, fiscal realignment was seen as one of the top priorities. It wasn't really reported that much in, in the outside press, but so clearly the government understands that this is an issue. Um, I mean, you, you, in a sense, you kind of answered the question. The, the, the kind of way ahead is, is quite obvious. You know, you need, in broad terms, a massive redistribution of wealth and opportunity from the industrial state sector to the household sector to allow households to, to be able to look, for them, look after themselves and, and have a better standard of living. But it's very, you know, it's hard to do that when you also have to manage massive debt levels. Because if you do that, then you're going to get a massive increase in uh, non-performing loans. Like if you stop this sort of system going, the um, non-performing loans will have to be realised. You know, you can't just keep on throwing new credit at managing it. If you realise the non-performing loans, then you need to find resources somewhere to recapitalise the whole banking sector. And where do you get that from? The only way you get that is is from households, from 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 existing savings, um, so yeah. So it, I don't. It's a. I don't really have a solution. I'm not saying it's going to lead to collapse, but um, if you want to feel sorry for someone or something, it's a Chinese household sector, as you mentioned. I mean, you've got people saving, as you mentioned, to look after their futures, but their savings are returning below market rates, so negative real rates, in order to subsidise the excessive, unneeded industrial activities of mainly SOEs to keep the system going. And because it's gone so far, to change it um, would lead to all sorts of corporate bankruptcies, would, would, would pose a systemic uh, financial risk to the country. So, so, you know, obviously the government's trying to slowly uh, change and slowly uh, alter the situation, but uh, it's hard to see how they can do it without a lot of pain, without a lot of social pain and financial pain. fair amount uh, about regional differences in China and the supposed east-west differences in the level of economic development. Are these local fiscal problems that you're discussing also, uh, do they also show a, a east-west differential in the, in the severity of the problem? 
Um, yes, they do. I mean, the you know, as I mentioned, when they began these fiscal reforms back in the nineties, the idea was that the central government, through its wisdom, would allocate more money to undeveloped regions, which just hasn't happened. You know, all the money pretty much went to the east or coastal regions. Um, so yeah, so what what you, what's happened with the local governments in in the poorer regions is because they're not getting a lot of fiscal income either from corporate activity or from um, or from a central government, they've been the ones largely driving these so-called tier two, tier three city uh, property property developments in tier two, tier three cities in order to raise fiscal income, um, and you're seeing a situation now where. The oversupply that I'm talking about, much of it is in the poorer regions where there is no way anyone there could ever afford to buy one of these, you know, one of these buildings. But they've been built and they've been sold to speculators in the east or east coastal regions, um, you know, just as speculative assets. So, yeah, I mean, yeah, but to answer your question, yes, it's, it's very closely linked. Um, and the western regions um, don't have a lot of options. I mean, in terms of the restrictions on the migration of labour um, that China has imposed, it's, you know, it makes all sort, of, all sort of open market sense to get rid of restrictions. You know, why not allow people to go where work is? The problem is that the rich eastern provincial leaders do not want poor people streaming to their country and the, um, the poorer western regions do not want people leaving their provinces because then they become less important. They, they'll become, they, they have less um, um, weight to, to ask for future funding. So, so that's why it's the provincial uh, leaders who don't actually want freedom of movement around the country. Yeah. Saying again, related to the last question, isn't there a problem in, in Chinese bookkeeping with, uh, the G, with looking at GDP versus national wealth in the sense that you're talking about uh, poorer regions and, and especially not poor cities but poor r- rural regions mm. and this whole question of, of land holding and the value of land holding. I mean, there are still an awful lot of peasants who basically don't get anything if they move from their farms to the city and in principle – you know, if, if those were changed, this, the, your comment about uh, not being able to afford anything, peasants who farmed land if they had title might yeah. actually be much better off, would actually be much better off yeah, than I mean, they are now. So. A- absolutely. If you look at the first 10 years of reforms, so 79 to 89, most of the economic uh, activity was driven by land reform. So peasants um, were allowed to use the land any way they wanted. They were allowed to sell their stuff at market prices. And in fact, if you look at poverty reduction in China between 1979 and now, 75% of poverty reduction occurred in the first 10 years when household incomes are rising faster than GDP. The reverse has happened since you've, you've, you've you know, you've, you kind of, the government changed direction. So I agree with you that the only way to raise household incomes, and I'm not making a logical point, I'm making an economic point, is to allow people to use their land to earn income which hasn't been happening. What's been happening, as you say, is that local governments have been seizing land at, in a, at low prices to make money for local governments. So, yeah, clearly the losers are the households that, were on, that, that you know, didn't own but were in possession of that previous plot of land.
my question is that uh, what are the specific implications uh, for America due to the uh, Chinese economic slowdown? So for America? Yeah. Um, I, I don't actually, I mean, economically, I don't s see a lot. I mean, China, um, I, I know you hear a lot of talk about China driving the global economy and things like that, but my view is that outside um, commodities, so outside commodity exporters, China hasn't been as large a driver of the global economy as most people believe. And I'll explain what I mean by that. If you look at the trade between America and China, right, most of it is processing trade. So American firms um, building plants, manufacturing plants in China, those plants assembling stuff in China and around Asia and then shipping it back to Americans or Europeans, right? If China slows down, the export manufacturing sector won't be affected that much because it's, much of it is externally funded anyway. Um, the other reason why I don't think China will have a huge impact on America is it would be different if China was a major um, market of end demand for American firms, but it's not. I mean, there are a lot of American firms in China, and it's, it's a significant market, but China still has a very closed market. It's a very protected market uh, outside the export manufacturing sector. So American Firms see ch have always seen China as the potential mega growth market, but it hasn't really eventuated uh, as as well as most American firms would think or ha have hoped. So my point is that China isn't driving the American economy and uh, and the profitability of American firms uh, as much as most people assume. So you know if there's a slowdown. Um, of course, there'll be some effect, but I don't actually think there'll be a proportionate effect for the American economy. All right. All right, I think uh, time's due anyway, but uh, no, thanks very much, and thank you all for your time. Thank you.